as we approach Thanksgiving, it's odd to stand here this morning and not be talking about heaven, but I'm sure we'll work it in there somehow. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11, but let's pick up our reading in verse number 3. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, in both my imprisonment and in my in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we see here a man in prison giving thanks, and he's giving thanks for a church that he has a report of that is growing in godliness, and he is giving them even further encouragement. He's talking about their progression of spiritual growth, and he uses phrases in here of how he yearns and longs to be with them, and he uses phrases about his remembrance of them and what joy it brings to think about being with them. Any of you during this time of year, you have great fond memories or fond remembrance of family being together all at one time and all being together and, and, and sharing a, a meal or sharing a, a whole day together? Anybody have any fond remembrances of that? Some of y'all look like y'all so mad at me right now, you could just hit me. Anybody have a fond remembrance? Amen? Amen. You, you actually liked your family and enjoyed being with them. Choir? All right. Well, here's, I have uh, fond memories. We used to, um, on my dad's side of the family, we used to have family reunions. And we would get together. I had uh, an aunt, my dad had an aunt whose husband was a pastor of a church over right at the Six Flags exit near Atlanta. And we would go there and have big family reunions. And everybody in my dad's family, would be there. My, my grandfather had several brothers and sisters, I think maybe six or seven of them all together, and they were all, the, they were all there, and all their children and grandchildren were there, and we would just fill that place up, and we would have this great meal. And the Lord, I, I met, I've told some of y'all this on Sunday night or Wednesday nights we, when we were together, the Lord gave me a wonderful dream about maybe a month, six weeks ago, and I dreamed about that reunion. And I dreamed about being with all those people. But we were in heaven. And it was clear to me in my dream that we were in heaven. It was all those people from that family reunions that we used to have. But it was, we were in heaven all together. And it was the most wonderful um, dream. And, the most, and, and I, I kid some of my cousins. I, I tell them. I saw so-and-so there, but I don't remember talking to you. But I, I did. The Lord let me know that we were all there together. I was just joking with them. 
But it just brought back a fond remembrance of being together, all together, and everybody um, sharing that time together. And this is kind of where Paul is. Paul is remembering a group of people who were so dear to his heart and so near to him that it was just, they brought joy to him that he can't get over. And that still is in his heart many years later. And through these verses, he contrasts the concept of joy and happiness. Happiness is something that we can have that lasts for just a little while. And we spend our lives trying to fill ourselves up with happiness when what God really wants for us is to find deep spiritual joy and to stay there. He wants us to move from the shallow end of the pool with a little bit of knowledge about Him and a little bit of knowledge and move into a deeper relationship with Him where we're just completely immersed in God. And Paul is teaching this group here at Philippi how to do that. And he prays for them with joy from his heart. This joy comes from the partnership that he shared with them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This group has supported him financially probably better than any other church that he had been a part of. When he was away from them, they supported him financially. While he was there, they gave him work to do. But more than that, they had a deep personal concern for his life. You see, their pastor, the man who established their church, is in prison. And in the culture that they live in, in this old time that they live in, it, brings, it would bring deep shame to a group of people to say, well, our pastor is in prison. But they continue to stand in solidarity with him, and he is giving them, they, they give him great encouragement. And now during this time in his life, he wants to encourage them back because, because he is there and because of their prayers and their support, he is able to share the gospel with those who are captive and the judges that he'll be a part of. Now this story of the church at Philippi, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, is where this all picks up and begins to take place. And his mind goes back to Luke's narrative there that we would read there in Acts chapter 16. And he's thinking about a woman named Lydia who was the very first European convert. He's thinking about going to jail there and having joy in his heart. He and Silas having such joy that they sing and that the prison is, is uh, loosed and that he leads a Philippian jailer and that jailer's whole family to Jesus there that night. And as he's thinking about all these things and he's hearing the good report from this church at Philippi, he wants to write them a message of joyful encouragement. And one of the main things that he's stressing here is don't settle for emptiness. Don't let your life be one of emptiness. Think of his circumstances while he's writing this letter. He's in prison. He may actually, as he's writing this, he may actually be in between the time that he went to stand before the governor, Felix, and King Agrippa. So he's waiting. He's either waiting for that first hearing or in between hearings. And he's wondering what he's going he's, he's, he's praying for what he's going to say. He's praying for the words to deliver to these men. Because he doesn't just want to give a defense of the gospel. He wants to lead these two men to the saving knowledge of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter that they're a governor or a king in a pagan society. So he's got those things weighing on his mind. And then he has the day-to-day -day just discouragement 
of being unable to be present in the churches that he has established. So there's a lot of things there that should rob his joy, but his life is anything but empty and it's filled with joy. And I think about this statement that I heard one time on a mission trip. As a man told our group, your condition is not your conclusion. Paul knew that his condition was bad. He knew that where he was was not an ideal situation. But he knew that this was not how his eternity was going to conclude. He knew that God was in control. And he had a joy that was unwavering. An unwavering constant in a spirit-filled life. It was not a feeling that came and went depending on circumstances. Because Paul wrote and told us, I have found how to be content whether I abound or whether I am in want. I am always content. So Paul has found that place in his spiritual life and he's constantly close to God and joyful. Now does that mean that he was always happy? No. You can have joy in your life and not always be happy. If you understand that, that you're, then you are at a place spiritually where most people are not. Because you can have joy in your life even when you're not happy. There are a lot of times I'm not happy. I expressed to our group Wednesday night where we were meeting, we were talking about some of these very same things, about the, the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit being evident in your life. When I'm standing in line at Walmart with 42 other people on a Friday afternoon, and there's 19 lanes that are, 19 cash registers that are open, and I'm waiting, and I got somewhere to go, and it doesn't necessarily have to be Walmart; it could be the grocery store or anywhere where I am. I'm I'm not happy that I'm having to wait. Any of the rest of you that way? We we live in a world to where we think that 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 everybody ought to stop what they're doing and open up a cash register just because we're there. Amen? And I'm not happy at that moment. But guess what? I better let the, love, I better let the joy of Jesus show on my face because Bree will tell me if it's not. And she'll tell me, you're being a bad witness to everybody here in Walmart or Foodland or Dollar General or wherever you are. We can be joyful even when we're not happy. When we're broke, we can still have joy in our heart. When we're sick, we can still have joy in our heart. When there are problems in our family, we can still have joy in our heart. We can always find the joy of Jesus in our heart. Paul, Paul wants us to never settle for emptiness in our heart. He says, in all my remembrance of you. These remembrances are personal. Now there's a key word in that verse there. And it's all. A-L-L. He says, in all my remembrance of you. Now how hard is that for, for, for a pastor to write? And say that in all my remembrances of you, I'm, I'm joyful and thankful. He's writing to a church. Now you think about this, in the church that he's writing to, there were conflicts, there were problems, there were personalities that he didn't mesh with, there were Sunday mornings that he showed up and he, was, he got there in the sanctuary and he had his thoughts and, uh, on, prayerfully on his sermon and somebody walked up to him and said, you got to keep that thermostat, it's too hot in here. 
Or then the next person walked up and said, you got a key to that thermostat, it's too cold in here. Well, Paul wasn't thinking, and by the way, I threw my thermostat keys away, just so you know. But Paul is saying here, I'm not looking at the problems, conflicts, and I'm not looking at the personalities. I am focusing on the good. I know that there were times there when people were upset with me and times when I upset other people, but I'm not choosing to focus on those things. And, and he says that focusing on the goodness, kindness, and successes of others does not involve denying their weaknesses. It's like a funeral service. A, pa- a minister at a funeral service. The last thing that a minister at a funeral service would do, if he has a good mind about him, would be to stand and talk about the person there who he's speaking over and say anything ill or bad about that person. Paul is saying here, I'm not with you anymore. We are apart from each other. But the Holy Spirit is prompting me to look past any shortcomings, look past any faults or weaknesses that you had, and to talk about and dwell on the good that we shared together. The Holy Spirit put it in His heart to write them and talk to them about this. And we should worry... Where we should worry is if we can only come up with the constant negatives that people that we would share with someone. So how did Paul make life in prison a joyful place? He filled his heart with prayer. He couldn't be there with them, so he prayed. And here's the thing, if you can't do anything else for someone, you can always pray for that person. You may not be able to physically be there with them or able to physically help them in some way, but you can always pray. And a great element of our joy is when we intercede in prayer with other people before God on their behalf. And we should delight in the privilege that we have of praying for other people. When we're more interested with the needs and welfare of others than we are with the needs and welfare of ourselves, then we can ask God to pour out His divine blessing on anyone, someone who may have even said something offensive or hurt us. Here is a a true test of joy, is do you pray for others more than you pray for yourself? Paul is experiencing the most difficult time in all of his ministry. But yet, He is spending time in agonizing intercessory prayer for these churches. And sometimes, as he's praying for the church at Corinth, we know that he's disappointed and it's painful for him with what he hears back from that church. But he's willing to take on the burdens of others. And not only is he willing to take them on, He's willing to invite those burdens into his life by praying over those people and their circumstances. And here's another reason why he's joyful. Look at verse number 6. He says this. My Bible doesn't have a verse number 6. Here it is. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion At the day of Jesus Christ. He's anticipating having a complete heart one day. He's anticipating one day his heart being complete. 
And nothing should fill our hearts with joy more than the knowledge that despite life's uncertainties and difficulties, despite the hardships that we may go through, despite what spiritual defeats we may have here, one day we are going to be made complete by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence was much more than human hope. It was confidence that he had in knowing and believing God's promise for him. That was the confidence that he had. God had begun a work in him when the Holy Spirit drew him to faith in Jesus. And he knew that there was no other way than through the Holy Spirit drawing him to Jesus. And now he knows that someday, with no possibility of failure or partial fulfillment, Jesus is going to complete a good work in him. And then in verse number 9, he, said, he gives them this, this advice for their minds. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If you need to know something this afternoon, if you need to find something out this afternoon, is there just about any subject that you can think of that you can't find out anything you want to know about in the, in the society we live in? Between Google, Wikipedia, between all the access that we have on the internet, there's, no, there's probably no subject that you can throw out here that you probably can't find at least 10,000 search results on. We have more knowledge and we have more information available to us than any people who have ever lived in, in the history of the world. But yet we have less knowledge and less discernment than ever we have had before. And Paul says here that we sometimes get these things out of order because we want to have knowledge and discernment of the Lord. We want to have knowledge and discernment of our relationship with God. But what does he tell us? Where does it begin? He said it begins when you abound in love. When you first take care of having spiritual love and, spirit and, and, a, and a desire to love God and love other people, then these things come to you. Paul says, there's a lot of things that I could pray for you, but there's none as important as me praying for you to abound in love and for that to cause you to grow in knowledge and discernment. Real knowledge is much more than mere factual information about God's Word or even acknowledging it is true and infallible. Real knowledge will create a longing in our hearts for holiness and obedience to God. When we really get to know God, when we really get the knowledge of God in our hearts and in our lives, when we really begin to understand the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, when we really begin to know those things, it creates a longing in our hearts. Paul said, I want you to know this for certain. I yearn to be with you. It creates a longing in our hearts to be with each other in spiritual situation, and it creates a longing in our hearts to know more about God's holiness and obedience. And then he moves on. 
And I'm going to move on so some of you can finish your conversations later. And he talks about excellence. He says this, God is a God of excellence. Look at God's creation. There is absolutely nothing left to chance or coincidence in God's economy. God wants excellence for His children. In verse number 10, he says this. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that indicates that Paul saw a progression necessary for growth in godliness. He's so intent on teaching them godliness that in these 104 verses, in these four chapters, 51 of these verses mention the name of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to say, it is my prayer. He's talking about the present tense. He's saying, I keep on praying. I keep on praying. I'm not going to stop praying because it is important that you find the excellent point in your relationship with God. And when he says love here, he's talking about the highest form of love, the highest good of the other person, where there, even when there is no response. No believer, no believer who has ever lived has exhausted the fullness of God's love. None of us have experienced the full capacity he says here, I want it to be abounding. He has a picture in his mind of an overflow. He says, I want it to be like a bucket that's placed under a great waterfall, and it's the love of God has fallen in your life so much that it's just pouring over and spilling out. John 7, 38, Jesus said this, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says, the product of love is this. So that you may approve, you may have the capability to approve what is excellent. Approve comes from a Greek word that describes the testing of money. When you paid someone there in Jesus' time, when you paid someone there in Palestine, a lot of times they would take that coin and they would bite it. And if they could bite that coin and they could break a piece of that coin off, what did that prove to them? It was fake. It wasn't real. And Paul says here, I want you to be able to whatever you hear and whatever is presented to you about the Lord, I want you to be able to approve it and only take what is excellent. He wanted the Philippians to be able to evaluate and determine what is excellent. David said, let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul had a goal here for them. The Greek word for excellent means to differ. The Philippians needed to know the difference. They needed to know that there was a difference between things so that they could take on what was true and important. Paul didn't want them majoring in the minors and looking for things and spending their time on things that didn't matter. He wanted them to have a focus, and he wasn't just talking about knowing the difference between good and evil, he was talking about knowing the difference between what was better and what was best for them spiritually. 
Jim Collins made it. Well, as I go back to puberty, Jim Collins made a Jim Collins made a statement in his great book on business. And the very first line of that book says, good is the enemy of great. It's a, it's a business concept, and it also applies to our spiritual lives. We can settle for good. We can settle for coming to church three times a, w- a week. We can settle for doing a, a, a little bit of things. And we can be happy with that, or we can seek what is great and not settle. And we can seek the greatness of God in our lives. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come so that you may have life and have it more what? Abundantly. He didn't want you to settle. And when he said abundantly, he's not talking about uh, TV preachers who have $10 million houses and who tell you that if you'll send them $1,000, you can have a $10 million house. He's talking about abundantly that happens in your heart where you are joyful in, in no matter what the situation. Even, even when you may not be happy, you still has a, have a reservoir of joy in your heart that you, dwell, that you draw from. And that kind of discernment enables a person to focus their time and energy on what really counts. It allows us to separate what is shallow spiritually and strive for what is deep spiritually. And to want to have a longing in our lives to never to be in the shallow part, but to move to where the deep joy is. It's a process called sanctification, being set apart, and Paul is emphasizing that. And he says that when we have that love, when we pray for that abounding love, it'll lead to us having integrity and a sincerity, a pureness about us. There's another test that, that, that they would go, they would have there in the day of Jesus, or, or when Paul was writing this, and it was called Sinicera. And they would, when they went to the markets and they would buy pottery, they would hold that pottery up. The only way they knew that if it had imperfections was to hold it up to the sunlight and then they could see if there were any cracks or imperfections in it so that they knew that when they got it home, it wasn't just going to collapse on them. Paul says that we should be real. We should be honest, not fake. We should have truth about us, no pretense about us. Our lives should be have an integrity that comes from taking God's Word and shining it on our lives and seeing if there are any cracks or any faults in it. That would, that would lead us not to be pure. He uses the word blamelessness here. That means that we should live a life that doesn't cause others to stumble. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 about how we should, our lifestyles every day should never cause, our activities should never cause anyone else to stumble and they should always glorify God. I remember, he's here this morning sitting down where I can see him. But Chris Posey, telling me one time, when I first became a Christian, Chris took me and he, he discipled me a lot. And I was very torn about something when I, when I first became a Christian. There was somewhere that I had been planning to go for months. And then I got saved. And I realized that it, it was a place I really shouldn't be, but there was still a struggle in my heart about going and being a part of this. And I'll never forget, we're riding down Quintard Avenue 
And Chris looked at me and he told me, he said, Michael, as you grow as a Christian, there'll come a place to where you won't want to be in a place where God can't be glorified. You remember telling me that, Chris? As old as you are, you still remember. I love you, Chris Posey. <laughs> Thank you for investing in my life. But this kind of life means that many times you're going to find yourself alone and you're going to feel like you're standing against the whole world. But here's what you can't do. You can't compromise. You can't give to the ways of the world. Let's hurry and finish the rest of this. He says that we're living this way so that on the day of Christ, we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. We will be found not in want, but Jesus will be able to reward us for the good works that we've done, for how integrity has led our lives to be different. Integrity is always going to produce good works. And there's two kind of fruits to be produced in the life of every believer. One of those fruits is this. One is that we want to win people to Christ. Romans 1.13 says, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you. Paul said to the church at Rome, I want to be there with you and I don't want to just be sitting around in Bible study. I want to go somewhere and win people to Jesus. I want to go to the temple and I want to stand there and I want to proclaim Jesus and I want to see people one to Him. And then another fruit is, is our actions and attitudes. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. People should be able to look at our lives and see these things evident in them because it glorifies God. Paul's whole point here to this church at Philippi is I'm praying for you to live this way in all, in, in, in the, that in the very end, and the goal of it is, is that your life is going to glorify God and people are going to see God in your life and seek Him because of how you're living. The Westminster Confession, the main point of it says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Paul is teaching, uh, is follow, simply following the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Paul's telling the church at, at Philippi, I want you to bear so much fruit there in this world that you live in where there is no evidence of God in the society. I want you to bear so much fruit that it can't be ignored and people are going to want to know what is going on there. It's no different for us in the society that we live in where God is completely being pushed out of everything that we do and we see so much disappointment, so much sadness, so much evil, so much in the world that grabs the headlines. But there are people all around us who just simply need to see the fruit of God being born in other people's lives. To see the fruit of repentance being born in people's lives, and for them to be able to ask, what is the cause of this? What causes this in your life? 
You see, Paul is also stating here, there's absolutely no shortcut in the Christian life. You can't get to this place of fulfillment and joy that Paul is talking about and not live in this formula that he's describing here. So, what is our task this morning as a church as we move into this place of thanksgiving over the next couple of weeks? Our task this week should be this, to pray for God to get glory from our lives through our pursuit of spiritual excellence, through our integrity, and through our good works. And then when people have the opportunity, and they have pause to ask us about our lives, and about the joy in our lives, for us to be ready immediately to share with them where it comes from. From a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we come to this close, and we come to a place of worship, and we come to a place of decision, and we come to a place of reflection, it's important for us to look at our lives and to look and to see, are we producing those things in our lives? And are, are there things in our lives maybe that we are overlooking and neglecting? And are we pursuing the greatest things that God has for us? Or are we just content to stay where it's good and where it's comfortable and where it's easy and never know what it is like to know the complete greatness of God? In, in our lives. And to never know that someday we'll stand before Him in eternity and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now you've inherited a lot. Would you bow with me? Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for this day. Thank You for the opportunity to minister, to preach. Thank You for the life of Jesus that Paul is holding up before the church at Philippi and saying, this is the end all be all. This is what we're striving for. Is to be more like Jesus. And to understand what it is to be living a joyful, thankful life that is blessed by God. Father, I pray this morning here that there are those who stand in need of forgiveness of their sins. Need to repent and come into that relationship with you. I pray that this would be the morning that they would begin that relationship. And I pray beyond that if there are others who need to make decisions spiritually about baptism, membership, or if they just need to come and pray and give thanksgiving or stand where they are and give thanksgiving to God, I pray to God that they would do that this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Would you stand as my...